Love is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days without any clear explanation of what it means. Love and relationships are a major part of the human experience and can be really complex. Today I have with me Stacy Craig, who has written and produced a musical titled Love the Struggle, based on the relationships between two philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Stacy, how are the factors that the philosophers believe impact love, such as roles, shame, secondary relationships, and thoughtfulness, hold relevance in modern society? Thanks for having me here today. It's really great to be here. So we're here to talk about my project, Love the Struggle, as you mentioned. And when I was in college, I was a philosophy major, and I studied existentialism. And as you and I talked about, I had a really um, formative experience in England. I went to study abroad at the University of London, and I was thrown into a situation where we were in the tutorial system, which was very different from where I went to school. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I was in a class with two students, and we had a three-hour class each week, and one of us had to write a 10-page paper and then lead the class for three hours. Wow. So this um, class that I was in was on being in nothingness, which is Jean- Jean-Paul Sartre's major philosophical work. Mm-hmm. And so I got very deeply into his philosophy, and I really never forgot it. Um, I really, it was, it was very impactful to me. We're going to talk about why a little bit later, but um, it, it sort of carried with me, and his thoughts and his views were things that I found myself agreeing with and de- disagreeing with and, and contrasting with other views that I came across really all my life. So um, a couple of years ago, I was looking at how to incorporate philosophy more deeply into my music. It's mm-hmm. been something that I've always done. But the idea of writing a, a lengthy piece, a two-hour piece about one uh, subject matter, one theme was very appealing to me. And I started to think that what I wanted to write about was how philosophers said one thing and did another, you know, mm. how, how people um, talk flowery, talk about love, but then go home and strangle their girlfriends. And mm. there can be, a, there's found a lot of that in, um, in sort of modern philosophy. And what happened was that I got stuck on the story of, of Jean-Paul Sartre and his, um, his longtime love, Simone de Beauvoir, who was uh, one of the first feminists of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, She predated the American feminists uh, of the 1960s by about 15 years with her book, The Second Sex. Mm -hmm. And I um, read a lot about their relationship and got very interested in their definitions of love and their their mode of being together. Awesome. And uh, just for those of you who are tuning in now, we are speaking with uh, Stacey Cray, on her upcoming work, Love the Struggle. Um, we are going over uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Simone de Beauvoir and their philosophies on love. Um, maybe next we should move into talking about how they defined roles. So, you know, if you take um, the beginning of existentialism, and, and Jean-Paul Sartre was really the founder of existentialism, although he didn't really like that term, um, one of the... F- fundamental tenets of existentialism is something that he said, which is that um, existence precedes essence. Mm. And what that means is that um, we are not defined by what we are. We are not defined by the physical objects that we are. So you and I are both bodies. We're here in this room. Mm -hmm. We're physical presences. But we know intuitively that we are more than that. And Mm. when we look at other people, we feel that. So when I look at this water bottle that's in front of me, 
it feels controlled, like I can understand it, and it's not going to do anything that's going to be um, surprising to me necessarily. But right. a person is very different. And the first thing that he came up with was this idea that other people are what tell me that I exist because I have a relationship with another person that's different than I have with this water bottle. And I can have very intense relationships, very relationships that are sort of fraught with emotion and feeling with other people, and they don't feel controllable, and it doesn't feel like I'm alone or that I have control. I'm in this world with these other people. Mm -hmm. And so what we have in other people is we have this body, we have this physical object, but we also have this consciousness, this freedom, this thing, what do you want to call it, a spirit, a, a soul, whatever, something mm -hmm. ineffable that's not materialistic that we use in our everyday lives and that is part of us as human beings. And those two pieces, what he called the object and the mm -hmm. subject, the subject would be consciousness, are part of everyone. And when we interact with other people, what we're trying to do is, is basically um, communicate with both aspects of that. Yeah. And it's difficult to communicate with the subject part because the subject part is kind of out here and it can do whatever it wants. It's involuntary. And um, one of the things that he noted about human relationships is that people tend to want – sometimes want to be the object – they mm -hmm. want to be perceived as this thing. So one of his most famous descriptions is about a waiter. You see a waiter at a restaurant, and there's something about the waiter that's just not quite right because the waiter is really trying to be the waiter. So the waiter mm -hmm. is bringing the coffee too quickly and being a little too solicitous mm -hmm. of thank yous from, from the customers. He really wants to be seen as this object, but really he's not that. He's something else. He's something more than that. And when we interact with other people – Mm -hmm. We have this desire to have them love the object. You want me to love you as the DJ and think that this is the most amazing DJ that right. ever was, right? But you're right. not just the DJ. You're this guy who's sitting in this room thinking about other things while we're doing the DJ thing. Mm -hmm. And that's another part of you that I can communicate with. So those that sort of dichotomy between the subject, which is, he would say, free, is something that can't be controlled, and this object, which is this fixed thing, those are the things that really make up what a human being is. And love and relationships have to deal with kind of both aspects of personhood. Really enlightening how we present ourselves basically versus how we really are in, inside as individuals. Right. Yeah. He also had a lot of really interesting ideas on love and uh, love almost being a, a battle of uh, power within a relationship. Right. He had, I think, a very negative view of human relationships. And this is one of the things that stuck with me after I after I left college was that to me, it seemed like he had something very right about human relationships and that it really is a battle. And what he would say is the battle is that you are um, as the person who's falling in love, trying to make the other person love you as this fixed object of this thing. And you are trying to love this thing that is the fixed object. But when the fixed object has a viewpoint or uh, 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 does something that isn't consistent with your view of the object, th mm -hmm. there is this, um, this battle, this struggle between the two. And really what you're trying to do at some level is control the freedom of the other person. So it's a, it's a, it becomes much like a conquest sort of scenario where you're really this, you have the person who is, who is the stalker and you have the person who is the prey in some way. And once the 
you know, the hunter is able to get the prey, the hunter becomes bored and mm. wants to, to move on to a new conquest and prove to the other, to the next person that he is a lovable character, that his objecthood is something that, that the lover wants back. So there's this, in his view, it can go back and forth between one person and the other. It's not that one person is always the strong one and one person is always the weak one. It can go back and forth. But there's no um, stasis. There's no equilibrium for him. It was just this never-ending struggle. And in his relationships, with the exception of de Beauvoir, he was very much like that. He was very much seeking the variety, the new person, to sort of fall in love with him. And then once they fell in love with him, he was bored and moved on to the next person. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And you do have a song that kind of addresses some of these. This first song is uh, called Love the Struggle. And it um, chronicles the meeting between Sartre and his first girlfriend who predated de Beauvoir. She was a very highly paid uh, and successful prostitute who also read Nietzsche at night and was um, ended up being a playwright. They have this song where they um, where he is is deciding essentially to choose solitude and and saying that love isn't worth it and uh and she's explaining to him that if he wants love he's got to have something to give back all right so we're going to go ahead and uh, play a little bit of a clip of that for our audience here have you got some money because you sure ain't got the looks Struggle by Stacy Crane. Yeah, so the musical is about um, the the two of them, uh, that is Sartre and Beauvoir, and they met. It's interesting. Um, they were both philosophy students in the 1920s at the Sorbonne. Um, Jean Paul was 
considered brilliant even then, um, but he was so brilliant that he failed his exams the first year because he was too original, they said. Mm. And in the meantime, um, Simone de Beauvoir had joined the program, and the two of them began studying together. She was the youngest person to ever get a degree at the Sorbonne in philosophy, and only the ninth woman. Um, When they had their exams, the two of them came in first and second, And he came in first, and she came in second. And they asked the judges years later, because at that point they were both famous, Mm -hmm. why was Sartre, why did he come in first? And they said it was because he was a man, and we felt like he would do something with the degree. He could take it somewhere, and she really didn't have many options to take it anywhere. She could Mm -hmm. go teach school, but that was really going to be it. So the two of them fell in love while they were studying, But even then, they both had these very similar notions of freedom and uh, of, uh, of, of this world in which we create our own world, where we, we ha- existence precedes essence. We have this situation where you can make yourself whatever you want to be. Mm. And um, so marriage was a little bit of a – not something that necessarily either one of them wanted to do or were interested in. It depends on who you believe, but – but we think that Sartre asked de Beauvoir to marry him a couple of times mm-hmm. and that she declined because she felt it was a really a dark hole for a woman. And he told her that he would still want to be with other women. And, you know, so she sort of said, well, what am I exactly getting out of this? <laughs> so they never married, but they decided um, back when they were in school, actually, that they would uh, be each other's soulmates, essentially, mm-hmm. that they would be each other's essential loves. And they named it that. Mm-hmm. And that they would each, as part of this pact that they made, be allowed to take other lovers as long as they were completely open and honest with the other person about okay. the loves. And they continued this relationship for 50 years and, mm. and never married, never had any children, never lived together, but had this very, very long-standing love or friendship or, or um, communion whatever you want to call it. So the, the musical is really about that, about what happens in that and and what happened to the other lovers, the, the quote-unquote contingent lovers, the secondary lovers, the ones that were not essential and that got mm-hmm. talked about between the two of them. Right. How did that feel to be one of those people, to be secondary? Next, we're going to move into talking a little bit about shame and how Sartier um, defines shame and how I saw it as a really important emotion. If I can have you expand on that for our audience, please. Sure. So we talked about the subject-object dichotomy, which is really important in, in existentialism and in the musical. And one of the things that struck me, there, there, were, there, were, several, um, there were several scenarios that uh, Sartre puts forth in Being in Nothingness that are um, very vivid and one of them is um, he has this idea that shame is a more powerful emotion than love. Mm. Um, and, and then he, he, he attempts to illustrate that through uh, a scenario where, where he is looking through a, um, a keyhole in, into a room at something that's happening in the key, inside the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I don't think he describes what it is, but you can imagine that it's something he shouldn't be watching. Right. And he has gotten um, completely enveloped in watching this. And he has really, he's very much his consciousness in the sense that he's not feeling his body. He's not remembering that he's a person hmm. standing over a keyhole spying on people. <laughs> 
and um, and he's engrossed in this what's happening in front of him, and he sort of forgets himself. And then all of a sudden he hears footsteps. And let's imagine, although it's not in the book, that it's his mom, mm, right? And she yeah. sees him, and all of a sudden he's overcome, or a girlfriend, he's overcome with this feeling of, oh, wow, now I'm this creepy guy who's right. looking through a peephole, and I'm not just this <laughs> in disembodied mind that's watching this really interesting thing. And he thought that shame was incredibly motivating, that how others feel about you or how you perceive them to feel about you is one of the things that causes you to do things, to mm. act. And so you can have the positive, you know, the, the flip side of shame is pride. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you, 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 do, you take actions in order to have pride or ha in, in your object. I am a songwriter and I am proud of that. But I'm... Sartre would say, not really a songwriter. That's just something I do. But what I really am is what I haven't done yet. That's mm. what he'd say. I, I am my possibilities. I am going beyond this objecthood. But people often get stuck in this objecthood. And I think for people that have really felt shame, they get this. Um, mm. The other really interesting thing about shame is that it really can't be imposed from outside. Mm. It has to be something that you feel from the inside. And the thing is that you can't make someone feel ashamed if they don't feel it inside. There was also this pact of honesty that Beauvoir and, and Sartre had, and he violates that in the scene where the, where the shame song happens. He is spying on their friends and has told de Beauvoir that he's not interested in this woman that he's spying on. So mm. he's caught, and he's this peeping Tom, but he's also, he's basically betrayed the one person that he thinks is his soulmate. Wow. And with that, we're going to go ahead and um, play the next song uh, titled Shame or Listening Audience. Stacey Gray, 
Uh, let's go into talking a little bit about their open relationships and uh, some of the people that are featured inside the musical that are their secondary relationships. So this situation that Sartre and de Beauvoir set up for themselves um, was a 50-year relationship, and there wasn't any way that I could fit everything into the (laughs) musical, so I left some people out. Mm -hmm. But I I tried to pick the people that were the most interesting, and um, a lot of people are uh, amalgams of several characters. It's not a – this is not a true-life story. It's not a retelling. Mm -hmm. It's really a fictionalized, dramatized situation. We spoke about Juliet, who is the the prostitute at the beginning of the play, and then – one of the more interesting people, I think, is um, her name is Marjorie in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is uh, a young girl, a young student um, of Beauvoir's, w- was very interested in in being becoming a contingent lover. It was already known in kind of society that uh, Beauvoir and Sartre were living this sort of relationship. and And to some people, that was a very appealing thing. And she wanted to become a part of this. So she... I think fell in love with Beauvoir and then um, and then basically asked to meet Sartre. Um, she did meet him, and in the musical and in real life, he took her virginity. Mm-hmm. And um, then there was a period where, um, let's just say in the musical, Beauvoir becomes somewhat jealous of uh, Marjorie's demands for their time. Mm-hmm. And she tells Sartre, you need to write to her and break up with her. And so Sartre does that. And um, this girl is absolutely devastated. And that's the song um, that that we're about to play is, is about that. And with that, we're going to go ahead and move on to the song. It's uh, titled A Contingent Love. Brian Colbert here with Stacey Cray. Uh, we've been talking about her musical, uh, Love the Struggle. Uh, we had just heard a piece from that uh, musical titled A Contingent Love. We do cover a lot in this interview, um, the philosopher's thoughts on love and shame and that they did share a long-term open relationship. How does this all work into a uh, modern society? Well, I think it's highly relevant, and I've spent a lot of time talking to people in the community about their own um, commitments, and especially I've, I have uh, do some teaching of teens. And what I find is that um, there is this desire in in many people to live a freer lifestyle or uh, to, I guess, shun marriage and monogamy as something that's unworkable. And mm. we don't have to spend time in this interview 
bashing marriage because it it's really something that has has taken uh, you know is is not something that's viewed necessarily by young people especially as a as a desirable goal, mm-hmm. and so then the question becomes well what do you put in its place and a lot of people generically think that um, something like an open relationship or something like what Sartre and de Beauvoir had is more is preferable. Hmm. So an idea where you have, for example, one person that you are most primarily committed to and you ha- you're allowed to see other people. And a lot of times people will use Sartre and de Beauvoir as the models for this without really knowing very much about their lives or about how it impacted them. Hmm. And so we really wanted to bring to light their experiences and do so in a way that potentially could be helpful to audiences in examining their own belief systems. So, um, you know, not only did Sartre and de Beauvoir, I mean, they wrote about all of these people in philosophical texts, in plays, in novels, in memoirs, in letters. And so we have all these different facets of this. And so they didn't just write, you know, Dear Diary, this is what happened to me today. They took whatever experience they had and they dissected it into all these different ways that you can look at as a modern person and say, how would I feel in this situation? Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what I think is helpful about philosophy in general is that it, it allows you to take an abstract situation and that you're not in at the current moment and and think about it and try to determine how you would respond. And so the idea would be that that modern audiences can look at this story and think about it and maybe talk about it with their peers mm-hmm. and and derive some benefit and sort start thinking about how how do I if I'm not going to follow the traditional moral code if I'm not going to look at the bible for the 10 commandments and what I should or shouldn't do how the heck do I figure out what is right and wrong in my own mind mm-hmm. and i think that these two thinkers had a lot to say about that about um about our our freedom, the nature of our freedom, and then also our responsibility for other people. So I think it's relevant in that respect. The other way in which it's really relevant is that this couple was in some ways the first social media couple. Hmm. They really uh, were out there when they were, you know, after they gained celebrity, which was in the 1940s. Um, Remember, these guys were as famous as like Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. When they came to the United States, it was front page news in the New York Times. And the students at Columbia University fainted (laughs) in the aisles. It was an overflow crowd. So they were really – because of this this idea of freedom and you – uh, you are what you will become. Uh-huh. You have control over your future. That message in post-World War II America had a huge, huge impact. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the two of them took that message and they put it everywhere. And they put a- everything about their personal lives out there. And as a consequence of that, some of the people got hurt. Some of the contingent lovers, I think, were really harmed. There was a young girl who committed suicide. I I wouldn't say that she necessarily committed suicide because of this, but she was she was impacted by this situation. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another woman who had a couple of nervous breakdowns and wrote a, you know, tell all memoir about it. There was a person who um, drank himself to death and was a very famous author. So there's there are lessons I think to be drawn from what happened. And I'm not saying it's all bad. It's certainly not all bad. But there are difficulties 
right? Mm-hmm. It's just like with marriage, there are difficulties. There are also difficulties with a sort of relationship in the way that Sartre and de Beauvoir imagined it. And they have a lot of guidance, I think, to offer people, for example, if you're going to do this, yeah. what is it? what are some ground rules or what are some pitfalls that may happen? Mm-hmm. Hopefully, um, you know, we're bringing it to people so that they can then um, maybe make fewer mistakes and at the same time be entertained and get a laugh because yeah. it really is. There, it's, not all, it's not all serious. You may be able to tell that from the music, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of humor in, in what we're doing and we're really trying to make it a fun uh, experience. One of the lessons I took uh, from the music and also from hearing about their experience was uh, being thoughtful of the people that are involved in your relationships. I think that's right. I think um, I don't want to do you know sort of give away the punchline of the musical, but right. there is a more optimistic view than the one that Sartre um, set forth. This love as struggle, but I do think that most people can feel that you know in mm. their relationships they 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 hope and pray that something in particular is going to help happen in a relationship, and then it doesn't. And sometimes it feels like that's because. Uh, you have more or less power in the relationship. Mm. There are alternatives to that. And, and I mean, at base, it's, it's a little bit about um, compassion and about, um, and about personal responsibility and how much of that do you want to have. And what happened with Sartre and Beauvoir both was that for them in their later lives, the idea of responsibility, including social responsibility, they were both social activists, um, became much more important than freedom, and and certainly uh, Sartre was was very dismayed at the fact that his message of personal responsibility was not heard nearly as loudly as his as his message of freedom. Hmm. Where could our audience listeners uh, learn more about your project? So we have um, we have a website called www.lovethestruggle.org. And we're hoping to have um, some community performances in the next few months um, in and around Berkeley and and the Bay Area. And what we are planning to do is have excerpts of the musical performed and then follow that by workshop discussions with audience members. And we're hoping to incorporate that feedback into the final musical. Uh, There's a part of the musical where um, Sartre and de Beauvoir have an opportunity to basically speak talk to modern audiences. And I'd really like to have a better sense of how people are reacting to what they're seeing and and draw from real world experiences in in formulating that part of the musical. So I'm I'm partnering with a wonderful organization in Sonoma County called Brave People mm. that works with at-risk teenagers um, and tries to teach them about healthy, living in many different arenas, including healthy relationships and self-esteem mm-hmm. and um, and responsible use of social media and that sort of thing. And so we would we really are planning to have some events where uh, people are able to see this hopefully enter- piece of entertainment and then react to it um, and, and give us their general thoughts and maybe even their personal experiences that um, are relevant to um, to those ideas. Wow. Well, let me know um, when you have one of the events in Berkeley here, and I would love yeah, to come by. Yeah, I would love to have you. And, Maybe uh, you can be on a panel with us and yeah, talk about your own experiences. Yeah, Maybe. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming down and taking your time with us today. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for yeah. listening. And again, this is Fran Colbert here with uh, Stacy Craig, our upcoming project, Love the Struggle. And uh, you can learn more about this at her website. 
www.lovethestruggle.org.